Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John talks with Dr. Hana al Muaybed, an associate fellow with the Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House, as well as a research fellow with the King Faisal Center for Research and Islamic Studies in Riyadh, about developing dynamics of employment in Saudi Arabia, particularly regarding women and the youth. Then, John, Will, and I zoom in on the concept of prestige as it relates to employment and discuss whether Saudi Arabia's reforms are moving fast enough. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Dr. Hana al Muaybed is a visiting research fellow at the London School of Economics Middle East Center, a research fellow at the King Faisal Center for Research and Islamic Studies, and an associate fellow with the Chatham House Middle East and North Africa program. Hana, welcome to Babel. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell me, what is the general shape of the Saudi labor market? And, and in particular, as young people think about the market, what are their employment prospects? So basically, 58% or so of Saudis are under age 30. So there's a really big youth population. And the majority of Saudis work in government. So it's about 66%. And I think that, you know, there's there's been shifts, there's been, you know, a huge push to expand the private sector and diversify the economy, kind of move away from the oil sector into all sorts of different sectors. When, in terms of kind of the split, there's much more unemployment for young women. There's a huge percent of non-Saudis in the labor market as well, which is an important feature. I think 58% of the labor force is non-Saudi. Yeah, I think uh, the majority of Saudis that are that are working have uh, bachelor's degrees. So, but that's also the largest represented segment of unemployed Saudis. And the youth unemployment rate generally is more than 30%. And one of the things you talked about in your dissertation is that for a lot of the young unemployed, they've never had a job. They haven't gotten their first job. It can be years between when they finish their education and when they actually start working. Exactly. I mean, this concept of kind of a part-time job or working, um, you know, while you're in while you're in high school or even while you're in university is not necessarily widespread in Saudi. So not only do you not have work experience when you're growing up, but you rarely have work experience when you finish uh, university studies or your technical degree. So, yeah, it, it's it's a tough place for young people looking for jobs right now. So Vision 2030, the, the big modernization program that the Saudis embarked on, had a strategy toward this. How would you capture that strategy? The vision is incredibly ambitious in a good way. I think there are a lot of things that, you know, it's recognized as challenges and really put it out there and kind of tried really hard to address some of the big challenges. So, you know, looking at the quality of life, looking at the environment is also in the vision and trying to create jobs in all sorts of different sectors. And you've done a lot of work, particularly on technical and vocational education and training, getting people to learn to be mechanics and cooks and other kinds of skills that not only get people off unemployment, but can create 
careers. What, what are young Saudis' attitudes toward that? They're not very good. <laughs> so the idea, I think there's just to take a step back, the way vocational education is structured in Saudi is, is kind of similar to the way it's structured in the United States. So it's kind of a something that happens after high school, not necessarily something that you would do as part of your high school kind of career, like it would be in, in a place like Germany or Switzerland where you have to, it's more something that happens instead of going to university. And Traditionally in Saudi, most people go to vocational colleges if they cannot get into academic universities. The quality inside a lot of the vocational schools isn't as great. And so people end up graduating and not finding work. So I think that, you know, that a lot of young Saudis really do look at it as a last resort for people that didn't do well. But that is changing. And the vision has actually change that. So there have been, and this, a lot of these developments that I'm going to mention now happened after I did my, my research. So there's been a lot of kind of private public institutes that have opened up and they're really coveted and people would actually like to go to them because they have programs which you go through and are guaranteed employment at the end of them. I did interview a cohort of young people that were going to one of these vocational colleges and they were more optimistic about their future prospects than the ones in the public vocational schools, but they weren't that optimistic. They had their own challenges that they were dealing with and there were other issues that they were worried about, but also there aren't very many of these institutes and so they're still harder to come by. And your dissertation talks a lot about the illusion of choice that young Saudis have, that, that, that there seems to be a lot of options, but both because of employment pressure, family pressure, social pressure, people sometimes feel they don't have much choice at all. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that there are choices that are bound by a lot of kind of restrictions. And so people's choices happen within boundaries of what's acceptable. And so you, you are making choices, but a lot of times you would like to make choices outside of that. And you're worried about kind of maybe losing the respect or losing the confidence that your family members or your community members have of you. So you, there's very little uh, career awareness. There's very little in terms of, you know, other types of developmental programs in schools. So you're making choices based on a lot of times very anecdotal evidence that comes from your family instead of real choices about, you know, real opportunities or potential opportunities that could exist for you. What does it matter if your family doesn't like what you've decided to do? Really depend on our social relationships for everything, I think. And that, that looks different uh, to different people. And your relationships could be your family relationships. It could be your friendships. It could be your colleagues um, or your, your parents' colleagues at work. But those social connections, whatever they are, whether they're tribal, whether they're newer kind of work relationships, friendships, they help you kind of get through life in, in a place like Saudi. You, it's who you know. They create opportunities for you, really. Um, and, you know, a lot of it can be merit-based, but you still benefit a lot from being in a community of people that you, you know, that you're comfortable around, who know you, who know your family. And I think that if they're mad at you, you lose some of that. And that's really, really valuable kind of social capital. 
And you've described trying to do work in a part of Saudi Arabia you weren't familiar with. You had all of the official permissions and everything else, and, and people wouldn't give you the time of day. And then you found a way through that. How did that work? Yeah. So this was when I was working before I was doing my PhD. You know, we had a, a program that was actually working with schools to uh, talk to young people about their career prospects. And it was, we were asked to, to provide it in its different city. So I was, uh, you know, I was in Demam and we, we needed to go to Tabuk. That's in the eastern province where a lot of, where Ramco is and a lot of the oil is produced. And I was working there. That's where I'm from. And then we, we went to Tabuk, which is a city kind of in the northwest. I, we didn't know anybody and we were making all the phone calls to all of the different venues that we wanted to rent out to host this event that was a career guidance event. And we were calling the government entities that we wanted involved who we actually were involved with in the eastern province and nobody was really answering our calls. And I remembered a friend from high school and one phone call later, people were calling us and offering us venues and offering us support. And when we got there, it was incredible. And so it really is, it, it really still does depend on who you know. Um, and so it's, you know, I was saying in the bigger cities, we do have people from all over the country living with us, going to school with us. And so it's easier. But when you want to go somewhere that's smaller, having those social connections is essential. One, one of the things that has struck me when I've dealt with other young women from other societies in the Gulf is partly that there, there's more interest in entrepreneurship, self-employment, sort of side businesses. There seems to be a, a certain freedom that some women take from not having to have a conventional career, not being locked down to uh, an office job. No, absolutely. I think that young women actually find a lot of opportunity in education spaces as well. So a lot of women will pursue further education. Uh, and, and that's because there isn't that pressure necessarily to be working if, you know, the family isn't in need. And so they can form new relationships through that type of interaction so that, you know, it's it really is empowering for a lot of women in that way. But as you say, more and more women, especially today, are finding kind of opportunities to work in a semi-informal economy that is more formal now than it was before because it's recognized more. So yes, Instagram and Snapchat are huge places where young women are marketing their products, things that they're making, things that they're doing. And that is, it's a space that women are comfortable doing because you really can do it from home. And I think COVID's actually maybe a good thing in that way, showing that there is a lot of value in, in working from home. And if these, you know, if everybody's doing it now, then what was happening before also had a lot of value. And so it's giving it more of potential uh, legitimate kind of value within the economy. One of the things that struck me reading your work on, on a range of topics is how much a unifying thread is a sort of persistent pursuit of prestige. And prestige is something other people see in you. It's not what you necessarily find fulfilling, but it's what your family and friends and spouses and whatever find impressive. Do you see that changing over time? Has it changed? Is there something else going on or is it just a question of redefining prestige for the 21st century in, in Saudi terms as you see it? I think it really isn't going away. I think people are, again, within this social setting are very much kind of aware of how other people look at them and really trying to please other people. 
I don't think it's going away at all. I think it's maybe even more extreme now because you have so many people using platforms that they can, you know, even project who they are to more people. It's not just the recognition that you get from your immediate family or your extended family, but now it's, you know, you're on a social media platform and you can get even more of that. There has been increasing commentary in the West about how we are encountering an, an energy transition sometime over the next several decades. Uh, certainly for the young people you talk to in Saudi Arabia, uh, it's gonna be in their, during their lifetimes. How is that affecting the way people are thinking about their employment choices, if at all? Um, and what do people think it will mean for their livelihoods and their well-being? I think that people are worried, to be honest, and I think that young people are worried about their future. I think that there's always the spirit of being enterprising, but there's this idea that they want to be in charge of their own work day, in charge of themselves, in charge of their own money. But up until now, that's really been something that people like to do on the side, as long as they have a stable job with hopefully the public sector for most people. But you know, they'll have their job and then they'll have their real estate office. They'll have their job and then they'll have their cafe, their barbershop. You know, these are things that people have done and, and they think of themselves as entrepreneurs because they have their own businesses. I think more people are going to stop having that stable income and have more of these is funding for. So young people know that there is access to funds to start new small and medium enterprises. There are funds to start new things. But there is the element of risk that's an issue still. And so I think, you know, there's there's prospects in starting your own your own company, your own business and getting funding for that government funding. But as well as there's more and more angel investors coming on the you know, scene and that kind of thing. But at the same time, I think that, you know, without real ideas and big economic growth, that's not going to solve anything. And so people are are worried and I think recognize that it's, they have no idea what it's going to look like. Is there prestige that goes with, with real creative ideas? What kinds of activities get people excited and what just seem like a small side hustle to generate a little cash? There's a lot of prestige and creative ideas. And most of those seem to be in the entertainment industry at the moment. So, you know, I think, and, and tech as well. Those are two areas actually where it's easier to get in and get investments anyways. And so I think a lot of young people are doing interesting things with different apps, with different kind of entertainment and and production companies and things like that. And I think that there are a lot of efforts inside the government to really create a platform to really show where people are succeeding, to motivate others. So there's definitely this narrative of grit and resilience that they want to promote. To me, that's excellent, but it also is almost putting a little too much burden on the individual and taking your hand out of it a little bit too much. I think we still need a lot more support in governance systems and in, you know, and throughout the kind of K through 12 education system to get people more equipped to, to do these things. A lot of creativity is about breaking rules, testing boundaries, subverting the dominant paradigm, some people call it. You've written about the, the pressure to paint between the lines. How do people see the tension 
playing out between the, the, the need to test boundaries, to do things in untraditional ways with a family and a social set that may be offended by people testing boundaries and, and, and doing things not the way their parents and grandparents did them. I think that every Saudi entrepreneur that has broken rule or, or that has succeeded that you speak to will tell you about all the rules that they broke and how resistant their family was to begin with. If you really talk to them and ask them that question. And I think that, you know, we, we need more of that definitely, but we need more support to kind of highlight how it can end up being a good thing. And one of the young people that I spoke to, he was a student in a technical college and he had a, a chain of restaurants, according to him. And, you know, he said that he, he really wanted to be a restaurateur and he had a partner that had funded him and he had a restaurant in Bahrain as well as a couple in Saudi and he was you know this is what he wanted to do but he had to go get this technical degree because his parents were just so upset with him that he didn't get into university so this was you know the least he could do to make his family happy and I asked him so well when you're done what are you going to do with your qualification he said you know what to be honest I'll probably end up working for Aramco or Sabic to big, you know, big companies, uh, semi-governmental. And he, he said that he was going to do that. And I said, well, what about your restaurants? And he's, you know, just like, yeah, I'll, I'll still do my restaurants. But you, there's still this, this pressure to conform, even when you're breaking the rules. <laughs> Dr. Hanet and Moabed, thank you for joining us on Babel. Thank you so much for having me. Next up, John, Will, and I zoom in on the concept of prestige as it relates to employment before exploring if Saudi Arabia's reforms are moving fast enough. John, when you asked about the unifying thread of a consistent pursuit of prestige in, in Saudi society, Dr. al Maibid characterized it perhaps unexpectedly as restrictive, almost as if it were like a prison. She spoke about how it works and what it looks like, but do you think this cultural element stands to change or adapt amid the economic development and reforms under Vision 2030? Well, it's, it's obvious everything adapts. I was surprised, frankly, that, that it was, it felt like such a dominating theme because when I've gone and interviewed people, you don't really see people struggling for prestige. And in some ways, you know, when, when we do interviews, we're a distorting factor because just being seen, being interviewed by us is a, a source of prestige. And I, I was really struck at the extent to which she felt from talking to, to more than 150 young Saudis that this insistence from their peers, from their families, from others, that they pursue prestige was almost like a prison for them. When John and I were in Saudi Arabia in, in 2018, I spoke to someone who was the dean of an entrepreneurship institute in eastern Saudi Arabia. And some of the things that he said about prestige I thought were really interesting because he was talking about the impact of oil on prestige. And he was saying his parents' generation were essentially entrepreneurs. They'd sold coffee and they'd made their own business. And he described them as, as job creators. But then he said when oil came in, it made everyone job seekers. And you were looking for the best job you could 
uh, but sort of applying to others to get those jobs. And so he said that now he's trying to really change his students' mindsets about prestige and about what it means to be a job creator. And he was given the example of having brought in uh, barbers to his classes. And, and he said initially his students sort of looked at him as if he was crazy and said, why on earth would we take lessons from people who are working as barbers? But then after they talked about the process of creating their business, hiring other barbers to work for them and whatnot, uh, he said that they were sort of surprised and and could learn a lot. But he was talking about really deep foundations of what is the kind of job that you want to have and said that he thought that the work he's doing is trying to shift that, but it's a, there's a long way to go. No, and, and one of the interesting things is, for example, Uber now in Saudi Arabia is 100% Saudi. Taxi driving used to be a job, maybe still is a job, that's generally perceived to be a job no Saudi would ever take. And yet, every single Uber driver I've had in Saudi Arabia has been a Saudi. And it's interesting how there are things that, that can acquire prestige, that, that the idea of what's prestigious isn't necessarily fixed. And I got the sense from Dr. Moabed's interview that she said that the entertainment and tech sectors are big drivers of that at the moment. And the entertainment sector is, is largely very new in Saudi Arabia. So I think that's one example of one. But, but, but that's one that sort of has prestige probably in lots of, of cultures, certainly in, in the US, I think it's, 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 there's a lot of prestige associated with the ent- entertainment sector. Although if your child is going into to entertainment as a business, I think there are a lot of sleepless nights as you wonder if the person will be able to make a living. And John, that point about maybe parents being nervous about their children wanting to pursue a, a career in the arts, I think gets at another really important aspect of this in Saudi Arabia and in other countries in the Middle East, which is the idea of failure. And I think the fear of failure that is so widespread and and entrenched in, in society. And I think it probably has its roots in the education systems. I think the Middle East is sort of famous for having a learn by rote approach, which obviously isn't the case everywhere, but in large parts of, of state education systems across the Middle East, it, it is. And I think that puts an emphasis, conformity and and not taking risks. And something that I think is really important is if places like Saudi Arabia are trying to encourage new entrepreneurs they have to encourage risk-taking, but they also have to normalize failure. And how do you do that? How do you create an environment in which you can show young people it's okay to fail and then get back up again? But on on the other hand, I think a lot of governments don't want people to take lots of risks because some of those risks might be risks against the government. And there's something empowering for governments that are concerned about retaining control that you can impose failure on somebody, that people and their families are government employees. And if they go, if they color outside the lines, they can have problems. Some governments, for political reasons, want people to be very risk averse. For economic reasons, may be interested in people becoming less risk averse. And then managing that becomes a, a challenge. And one of the interesting things about entertainment is a lot of successful entertainment is about 
pressing boundaries, testing boundaries. How does Saudi Arabia, on the one hand, encourage people to be very creative and break rules, but on the other hand, obey very important rules that in the minds of a lot of people in the Saudi leadership are important for maintaining social peace and and, and political uh, stability? We hear a lot in the field of Middle East studies about efforts to diversify economies away from independence on oil and ambitious economic, social, and, and political reforms. Dr. al mentioned that young Saudis worry for the post-oil future, but do you think they're paying enough attention? Here we are talking about risk aversion and prestige, and yet 66% of Saudis are still working for the government. Is change happening fast enough? Well, I think it's important to be fair uh, to Saudi Arabia and to acknowledge the scale and speed of the changes that are in process at the moment. When John and I were in Saudi Arabia, it was very, very evident that people were sort of conscious about living through this, this period of immense changes in their lives. And a lot of the foundations of, of their lives are, are changing as a result of Vision 2030 and in pursuit of Vision 2030. And so a lot of these things that we've been talking about are really quite new to a lot of people in Saudi Arabia. And I think that th- to some degree, we should acknowledge that the government is is limited in just how much it can do, just how quickly. So I think that very, very rapid changes are underway. But at the same time, clearly, there's an enormous way to go. And I mean, the example of the Entrepreneurship Institute, that's one example. There are several hundred students there, but that's in one university. And I think it's relatively unusual. And there isn't a really widespread entrepreneurial class across Saudi Arabia that's really trying to push and change things and and change the way of doing business. So I think these things are going to take time to grow. They're going to take time to take root. But the process is, is begun. Saudi Arabia got the way it is now, partly through change over generations. It will get to the way it's going to be through change over generations. The challenge that the Saudis have is you want some urgency to actually promote the change. You don't want too much urgency for fear that you you upset the social order. There is a profound economic challenge a profound social challenge, a profound educational challenge that the government is trying to navigate at a time when the International Energy Agency estimates that global oil demand is going to start to diminish after 2030. So you're looking at trying to navigate all of this at what may be a time of diminishing income. Whether it's the right amount of diminishing income, enough to create the necessity and the urgency to change, not so much to prompt people to do things that create irrecoverable instability of the bad kind, but you might want irrecoverable instability of a good kind. And this is really the challenge that all the Gulf governments are facing. You want enough discomfort to produce change, not so much discomfort to create chaos. And 
that partly is under their control and, and partly is, is exogenous to the region. But, but it strikes me that one of the big changes in the last 10 years is everybody's aware of this problem. Everybody's aware of the need to diversify economies. Everybody's aware of the need to change educational systems. How well they do, whether it will be sufficient, that's the real challenge they're all grappling with. John and Will, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.